Okay, uh, this is David Spence. I'm here for EnergyTradeoffs.com with Sheila Olmsted. Sheila is a professor of uh, public policy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at the University of Texas and formerly of the Council of Economic Advisors. Your term spanned the transition from the Obama administration to the uh, Trump administration. Yes. And, and we want to talk today about sort of evolution of thinking within economics about carbon taxes sure. because uh, climate policy is big on the agenda in this campaign season and so there's been a lot of talk about regulatory instruments and uh, I thought it'd be helpful to just sort of think about carbon taxes out loud a little bit with somebody who really understands yeah. it. Sure. So um, about a year ago, a group of economists uh, published a statement on carbon taxes and carbon dividends. Uh, and you were one of the people that signed that statement. And the, the, it was an endorsement of carbon taxes as the most cost-effective way to try and achieve the kind of carbon emissions reductions we need to make the kind of progress we need to make to really mitigate climate change's effects. Um, and I want to talk about um, the sort of basic logic, or I want to hear the basic logic behind that statement, and then once we have that, uh, we'll maybe follow up on some of the sort sure. of, uh, nuances there. Yeah, so the, the basic logic behind the carbon tax is that the emissions that we see today that are changing the global climate um, are the result of the incentives that people and firms and households and farms and so on, the sort of individual actors in the economy face when they make their decisions about whether to use energy, how much energy to use, what to use it for, and so on. And so, um, you know, our choices to, you know, flip on the light switch for not versus not, or to buy a fuel-efficient vehicle or an electric vehicle or a gas guzzler, um, and how, you know, when we bought and make that purchase, how, how uh, far to drive, how close to live to our jobs, all of these choices, right, are, are driven by the incentives that we face in terms of prices. And the one thing in those transactions that's not priced is the carbon dioxide emissions or the greenhouse gas emissions that are changing the climate. And so the idea is that if we priced those, then people would face the appropriate set of incentives when they made those energy consumption and production choices. Um, and as a result, we would drive down emissions right, for, uh, uh, per unit of energy produced or consumed. Some, uh, in, in the political world, some people are afraid of a carbon tax because they recognize that, at least in the first instance, it would make energy more expensive. Yeah. And other things produced from energy more expensive. Sure, yeah. Um, how, do those, how does the economist statement address that issue? Well, I actually find this to be one of the most fascinating parts of the conversation because we already have lots of policies in place that make energy more expensive, right? We have corporate average fuel economy standards. We have renewable fuel standards. We have weatherization programs. We have incentives for solar PV. We have incentives to purchase electric vehicles. We have all kinds of regulations and incentive structures built into the economy that are trying to get at the same goal, trying to reduce energy consumption, trying to reduce emissions from energy consumption and production. Um, and Good studies by economists, recent studies, and, and, and certainly going back even in longer than recent times, um, show that most of those policies are much more expensive than the kind of per ton cost that one people are talking about for the kinds of uh, carbon taxes that might be considered in a place like the United States. Um, the Climate Leadership Council's uh, proposal that I signed on to was $40 per ton. We can talk later about whether that's the, the right number or not. But, I mean, $40 per ton is a lot cheaper than the dollars per ton cost that, that we see for those other policies that I just named. And so what happens is, you know, making energy more expensive, no matter how we do it, 
can make people unhappy, right? It can, it can, and, it, and particularly uh, politicians might be concerned about regressivity, right? About the idea that uh, low-income households you know, spend more on energy as a share of their income than do high-income households, and so why would we want to put in place policies, right, that are that put a heavier burden on on the poorest families in our, you know, society than than they do on the richest families? This is a super important discussion, and what I would say is any policy that increases the cost of energy is regressive unless we design the policy to be not regressive. And almost all of those policies I just listed, for steel economy standards, weatherization programs, subsidies for wind or, or solar energy, um, renewable fuel standards, almost all of those do not generate any revenue that you can use, right, to make things better for poor people, uh, to make the policy less regressive, right, than it, than it is in its raw form. And in contrast, a carbon tax does generate revenue to do exactly that, right? When you can make, make the, the uh, tax much, much more affordable or the, the full, total impact of the tax much more affordable to poor households or do anything else that you would want to do with those revenues. But the point is it generates revenue that you can uh, use, the government can make expenditures to make people's lives better in some way. Um, and that's very, very different from those other policies. And so actually most studies of carbon taxes, the kinds of carbon taxes that would be implemented in the U.S., Certainly a tax like what was proposed by the Climate Leadership Council that would recycle all of its revenues, that is be revenue neutral, that's a common phrase, just means that all the revenues that are taken in by the carbon tax would then be you know, sort of sent back out to households in one form or another. Um, in the CLC's proposal, the specific revenue recycling mechanism is a rebate, right, that would go to on a kind of per individual, per U.S. citizen basis at the end of the year back to everybody. Um, there are many other ways to do this. You could reduce marginal personal income tax rates or corporate income tax rates or the payroll tax. You could, uh, you know, recycle revenues in many, many different ways. And studies by economists show that depending on how you choose to recycle the revenues, you know, the, the resulting total package policy, right, the tax itself plus the recycling program, revenue recycling program, um, could be either more or less regressive. In some cases, it can be quite progressive, uh, just depending, especially relative to these other approaches, the standard-based approaches that we were just talking about. Um, and so that's a really nice aspect of the carbon tax that often gets gets overlooked. Does that literature you just referenced uh, talk about or analyze the progressivity or regressivity of using carbon tax revenues for a sort of broader investments like public transit and things yes. like that? Yes, and there's certainly states that are exp have experimented with pairing kind of carbon pricing with those kinds of government expenditures. California is a good case. It's not a carbon tax. It's a cap-and-trade program, but the revenues from that cap-and-trade program go toward, you know, subsidizing those kinds of, you know, clean energy investments. That can be done. It's interesting. There's a paper I was just looking at by Larry Goulder at Stanford, some of his colleagues in the Journal of Public Economics from last year, that showed that even in the case where the government sort of takes the revenues and uses it for general public expenditures, just that process of, of using it for general public expenditures can actually make it progressive, right, rather than regressive uh, in comparison to the, the approaches that don't uh, generate revenues, simply because low-income households tend to be sort of a recipients of gr a greater share of the sort of benefits of those kinds of public expenditures. So even if you don't design it to sort of buy green technology or green infrastructure per se, right, there's still this kind of progressive or more progressive element to that kind of revenue recycling than for the other types of policies where we don't collect revenue. My general statement about recycling revenue by, you know, investing in more bike lanes or kind of green transit, those kinds of things, is to know how that affects households at different parts of the income distribution, you'd really want to do some work to try and understand that. Now, the things I named specifically 
sound like the kinds of things that would tend to benefit higher-income households, not lower-income households. And it is interesting to me that out of the political process, often that's what right, people want to spend money on, and your thinking is, we're trying to solve the climate problem, right? let's take the revenues and then put it right back into solving that problem. Again, I would advocate a more kind of measured approach, where if you've got a, you're trying to solve the climate problem, but you're also trying to make things affordable to poor households, really try and target those, uh, the sort of expenditure of those, those new carbon tax, re- tax revenues to do, to achieve that goal, right, um, rather than, right, trying to earmark them for specific projects. And do you see the rebate, the direct rebate, as sort of the best way to do that? Well, the rebate, there's a lot of studies that would suggest that that kind of rebate to, to households, and especially something that might even be means-tested, right, where you would rebate more money, right, to, to lower-income households, that tends to be one of the most progressive ways or least regressive ways, depending on the study you're looking at, to, um, to, to recycle those uh, carbon tax revenues. So why do you think the carbon tax is sort of relatively unpopular compared to these other instruments? Is it just because the immediate price increase that you see at the pump is uh, just intuitively obvious and with these these other instruments the added cost is sort of hidden yeah i think that's a really good question i think that's part of it i definitely think part of it is that the carbon tax it is a tax it sounds like a tax it is a tax right that's that's all the language that we use to describe it is a little bit anathema right to some you know americans we tend not to like taxes and so we, we we have this sort of initial you know reaction that's not necessarily so positive I also think when you think about these other approaches that we are already taking and that are already more expensive, right, than $40 per ton or $50 per ton or even sometimes into the hundreds of dollars per tons, they have direct groups that they benefit, right? So the renewable fuel standard helps farmers, corn farmers in Iowa. And so, right, somebody is there, there's a constituency there to lobby hard for a a renewable fuel standard. And every year that this thing comes up and and has to be renewed, right, they are out there, you know, lobbying hard for a a more stringent standard that benefits them. And the challenge is that the benefits of a a much more uh, sort of general climate policy like a carbon tax, they don't accrue, right, to any specific industry in such a concentrated fashion that that industry has an incentive to to lobby hard for it. We sort of don't have this this easily targeted, easily identified constituency that's going to push for the policy the way we do with, uh, you know, uh, you know policies that, that target one particular sector. Maybe directing the revenue to sort of uh, community solar for poor households mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that shows a direct reduction to their electric bill. Yeah, finding a way to, to use the yeah. revenue recycling and, mechanism. And then you have the industry, industry also there doing the lobbying right. uh, on behalf of the camp. Right. We just solved it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Let's just go to the Congress. I'm sure we can get it done. <laughs> One other element of the carbon tax discussion that uh, came that's always been part of the discussion, but it came up in a paper that I just noticed this week. I don't know how old it is. The Metcalf and Stock paper yeah. um, uh, showing that uh, countries that have a carbon tax or jurisdictions that have a carbon tax do not seem to show any uh, downward effect on growth. In fact, yeah. they, they find a sort of very mild um, positive effect on yeah. growth. Um, yeah. Is yeah. that consistent with the rest of the literature? It is definitely consistent. Um, what I would say is so much of the conversation about a carbon tax when I was in the White House, obviously we weren't considering any specific proposal because there were no carbon tax proposals on the table during the end of the Obama administration and certainly at the beginning of the Trump administration. But we did a lot of thinking and talking with the U.S. Treasury Department and so on about, you know, kind of those kinds of ideas relative to the different regulations that were in place and, and how those things would work. And 
almost all of the questions that people have and the concerns that people have about these kinds of policies in the, the political context has to do with the impacts on things like GDP and, and employment, right? These kind of macroeconomic measures by which every presidency likes to mark its, you know, sort of its right. Uh, victories, right? Um, President Trump and that even before President Trump, candidate Trump, right, campaigned on, you know, we're going to have 4% growth, right? And right now pushing and talking about 3% and, um, these are really important numbers, right? The, the degree to which the economy is growing, the degree to which we've got, you know, kind of approaching full employment, these are really, really important politically. And what I would say is that the carbon, the evidence in the literature does not suggest, does not support the often stated political viewpoint that a carbon tax, at least at the levels that we've talked about, uh, you know, sort of debated about in the United States, um, has certainly not strong negative effects, and in many cases, studies would suggest no negative effects and sometimes even small positive effects on those kinds of outcomes, GDP growth and, uh, and employment. And it's tough, right? We don't have, we have about 15 countries in the EU that have, had, that have carbon taxes in place uh, today. The other example that's been quite well studied is in British Columbia. British Columbia introduced a carbon tax at $10 per ton in 2008. Now, the employment and, and GDP uh, uh, results are kind of interesting, right, because when I, when I say no effect, what I mean is no aggregate effect. And interestingly, right, in the BC case, it's been in place long enough that we can see there's, some nice, there's a nice paper now showing that, hey, some sectors have negative effects and other sectors have, have small positive effects, and those counterbalance each other. They just balance out to approximately zero over time. And what I would say is that people say, well, see, you said there was no negative effects. Well, look at here's some negative effects on carbon-intensive sectors. And I want us to sort of back up for a second and think about the fact that the reason we would implement a carbon tax is because we want to reduce emissions, right? <laughs> Not because of we're thinking exclusively about the cost side, which is where our conversation is focused, but we want the benefits of it. We want to reduce emissions. And so you're, you're trying to shift that economy, right? Use the price to shift the economy toward a less carbon-intensive path. And so that's exactly what, right, that differential effect, right, sort of a small positive effect on sectors that are not carbon intensive and a small negative effect on sectors that are carbon intensive is kind of showing you that the tax is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, right? It's sort of squeezing, you know, some, some greenhouse gas emissions out of the economy, benefiting some and, and hurting others. And that's a real challenge, right? We, we, we're never going to have a carbon tax in the United States that doesn't hurt, for example, coal miners in West Virginia unless we take those revenues and we recycle them to help displace coal miners in West Virginia. Right. But if we had a carbon tax that did not reduce the amount of coal that we're burning in the United States to generate power for steel production or for energy, you know, electricity production, then that carbon tax would not be working very well. <laughs> right? So we kind of have to, we expect to see negative effects in, in some sectors because we need them to shrink right, so that we have a cleaner economy. But those distributional effects you describe are, you know, once again, raise that political salience problem, Absolutely. which is that the people who are going to lose know who they are. There's no question. And the people who are going to be the beneficiaries of this future growth industry don't know who that's, they are. That's, there's no question. But, so the, but again, the truth is that right, if, if, if the energy policies that we have in place today, the corporate opportunity economy standards, the subsidies for wind and solar and electricity production, if those are also meant to squeeze right, emissions out of the economy as we grow, those are also having those kinds of effects. Um, and those are also having regressive effects. And those are also affecting coal miners in West right. Virginia. Absolutely. It's just less visible, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it may be a little bit harder to detect. Um, but my, my, again, my, my view would be, hey, if that's what's going to happen, let's collect some revenue while we do this so that we can help the people who are, are going to experience those negative impacts. 
One of the other elements of the statement about a year ago, the Climate Leadership Council statement, is that it proposed a $40 per ton tax uh, increasing over time. There's been um, scholarship since then that suggests that that number is too low. Yeah. Uh, and some scholarship even suggesting that it ought to be high and then decrease. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how your thinking has evolved over yeah. the last year based on those new, uh, Definitely. Those new papers? Yeah, the sort of most frequently used numbers when you talk to economists who think about climate change and, and you know, trying to think about what is the level of damage that is caused by a ton of emissions. Because if you want to set the tax, you want to set the tax approximately equal to the amount of damage that a ton of emissions is causing. And so a lot of the, the, the numbers in that 40 to $50 range come out of what was called the Interagency Working Group on uh, the Social Cost of Carbon or Interagency Working Group on the Social Cost of Greenhouse Gases. And that was a group that was formed under the Obama administration and worked over a long period of time to develop a set of estimates that are widely recognized as, uh, as good sort of starting point estimates. That process is now doesn't exist anymore, so we don't have a federal interagency working group. There's no uh, 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 ongoing process to develop and update those estimates, but there's a lot of good academic research happening outside of the federal government. Um, some of it is seated at Resources for the Future. Some of it is seated at uh, EPIC, the uh, Energy uh, I'm going to forget the name of the, what EPIC stands for, but it's a group at the University of Chicago and cooperatively with um, UC Berkeley as faculty at both universities working together. Um, and in both of those cases, as well as for approaches that are sort of happening outside of those two groups, we're starting to see this mounting evidence that those old kind of 40 to $50 per ton estimates were probably too low. So just one example is that this group at Chicago and Berkeley just over the past year have released some early estimates kind of building up from these very careful microeconomic models looking at climate damages. You know, they can get you know, at or above those old 40 to $50 per ton estimates just looking at what the effects of premature mortality will be from climate change. So then you have to think about what about property market effects? What about right, all these agricultural yeah, losses, yeah. right? All these other things that we would add to that. And they're working on building all those additional things in, but the early work that they've produced is really very high quality and would suggest that, gosh, it's not going to be hard to get over those old estimates. And there are many others. You mentioned a couple um, in your question. And so what I always teach my students is my, in my class is, okay, here are these, you know, what we sort of started at with these pretty good baseline estimates, but they've kind of only gone up from there. And that, you know, if there is, again, at some point, an inter, you know, federal interagency working group and a revision of the, the U.S., you know, official social cost of carbon, um, I suspect it will go higher. It will certainly not go lower from the evidence that we've seen in the literature. If it goes up to the into the range that some of the authors are talking about, you know, over $100 a ton, yeah. um, do you worry about the sort of political shock of all that? Yeah, um, it's a it? great question. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is I'm sitting here on my desk. I have this copy of a paper by Ken Gillingham and Jim Stock where they estimate the social costs of policies that are not carbon taxes, right, or, or cap and trade. Um, and, and those are in, I mean, hundreds and sometimes even thousands of dollars per ton for stuff that we already have in place. And so, yeah. again, it's this visibility yeah. problem, right. right? So you're right. It's $100 a ton, Josh, that, you know, that, that really sounds like a lot. Um, but, again, comparatively, right, to the stuff that we've already got in place, it's actually not, it's actually not that much. Uh, the stuff I've seen in the evolution of electricity markets, certainly in competitive wholesale markets, coal would exit very quickly Absolutely. at that, at that Absolutely. price. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and probably gas would 
stop growing and, yeah. and, and exit in some places as yeah. well. But I suppose that would provide the incentive for technological innovation for sort of firm resources that are That's aren't, true, or even things like carbon capture, yeah. or, right, which brings back some of those older resources. Right. So right. Um, so it's a hard it's hard to predict. I mean, this is one of the beautiful things about economy, right, is yeah. that the rate and direction of technological change is um, it's a magical thing. It's not something <laughs> that we predict very right. well. as um, And so... Um, uh, but the one thing we can say is that if you provide the incentive, right, then uh, then it's likely that, that there will be a response. If investors know today, right, that the tax is going to start at $50 per ton and then it's going to ramp up and in 10 years it's going to be, you know, 70 and then 20 years it's going to be 100 or right, whatever those numbers are, that gets, you know, kind of that's an input to their planning process and that's much more likely to affect them in a way that we want, right, for the policy to work to reduce emissions and get us on a cleaner path over time than just saying, okay, it's, you know, it's $100 today, right? Because, again, they're making these very long-lasting investments. Right. And so we want to give a signal to firms and to households um, as to what that's going to look like um, mm-hmm. uh, so they can put that in their present value calculation. Right? If only people had a the, – the broader public had a better understanding of the costs that are already being imposed by existing rules, this yeah. would all be put in context a little bit more easily, yeah. but, but we don't. Yeah, there are a lot of debates about that and whether, like, if one were to design a policy, would you – you know, to to achieve it politically, would you make a deal where you took away some of these more expensive existing regulations? And there are obviously people fall on both sides of that. I think one of the things that's most interesting about a carbon tax is some of those existing regulations, it would simply obviate. They would just no longer be binding, right? right? Anything, anywhere in the economy, right, over time, where someone was was engaging in an activity where they, they could reduce those emissions at cheaper than the $50 or whatever the, the carbon tax happened to be, they would do that, do it, right? Yeah. And so some things would not, even if they weren't taken off the books per se, right, they, they would be obviated by the carbon tax. Other but, things wouldn't be. So. But you can see why putting enshrining that kind of trade in law makes some people nervous. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And that's been proposed, right? It's yes, just, it has. Yeah. And, and absolutely, I mean, and the challenge is too, kind of once, you know, a lot of the, these, you know, if the carbon tax is in place and a lot of the transition takes place and, right, then the revenues go down. There are good questions about that, too. If, right. we, if we say, okay, well, let's have a carbon tax, let's, you know, trade a good tax for a bad one and trade a carbon tax for, a, a, you know, a decrease in the uh, personal income tax or, mm-hmm. you know, payroll tax or corporate income tax or something like that. Um, what happens as, if the carbon tax is successful and emissions go down and revenues go down, do we have to put those taxes back? Right. So right. There are a lot well, of I was actually thinking of the wiping away Clean Air Act authority. Yes. Uh, which I think was part of one of the proposals um, yeah. that was floated within the last couple of years. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that really scares a lot of the people on the yeah. environmental yeah. Uh, side of the ledger. Yeah, it's understandable. It yeah. really is. Well, this has been very interesting. Thanks so much for sitting down. Sure. Yeah, happy to. All right.